Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Good morning or afternoon or evening, depending on when you're listening to us. This is Nancy Johnson again. I am an attorney in the Orlando office of Littler Mendelssohn. We're coming back for another installment of It's a New Day America Candid COVID Conversations. And I'm Kimberly Dowd, the office managing shareholder in Littler's Orlando office, providing labor and employment advice and legal services to employers of all sizes throughout Florida. As promised, we are back this week with a focused topic we think almost every employer has thought about, or perhaps tried actively not to think about due to difficult personnel implications, vaccines. Nancy, where should we start? Well, I think it makes sense for me to first give everybody a a little overview of the evolution of the COVID-19 vaccine, what's available, and what, as of at least as of today, January 29th, we expect to happen in the near future in Florida with respect to the availability of the vaccines. So I'll kind of run through that. Beginning in about July last year, Florida began to stockpile syringes, lining up workers to distribute vaccines to its residents. Everybody was pretty gung-ho about getting vaccines and, and really working toward a solution to be able to vaccinate everybody. By October of 2020, as part of participation in a federal five-jurisdiction pilot program, along with California, Minnesota, North Dakota, and Philadelphia, Florida um, submitted a 51-page plan to DHHS. Hopefully, then DHHS was to come up with a model to safely deliver vaccines to Americans. Florida's plan, unlike most others, put healthcare and other essential workers, persons with medical conditions that place them at high risk, and all adults over 65 in the first group to get vaccines. Most of the other plans put frontline workers, medical workers first only, and then put in 75 and above, and then move down to the the 65 and above group. On December 3rd of last year, the CDC's advisory committee issued recommendations allocating the first shipment of vaccines to, and, and the CDC's committee allocated them to healthcare personnel and to residents of long-term care facilities only. So that was that was the advisory committee. That was their advice. So on de- getting pretty close to vaccines at that point, obviously. And on December 11th, the FDA issued the first emergency use authorization, so EUA, for the Pfizer vaccine. On December 18th, the FDA then issued the EUA for the Moderna vaccine. So those are the two vaccines out there that we've all heard about, the Pfizer one and the Moderna one. Both of those are come in two sets, so everybody has to get a booster shot in order for them to be long-term effective. On December 11th, then the first shipments of the Pfizer vaccine were sent out to the states, and everyone got pretty excited, if you remember. On December 20th, the CIP updated its guidance and advised that phase 1B of vaccine distribution should include offering the vaccine only to persons over 75, non-healthcare frontline essential workers. So that was the group that everyone other than Florida had first recommended, right? So 1A was the people in hospitals actively working with COVID patients. That was the same for everybody. 1B was the difference. And then 1C, this is the, the federal recommendation. So 1C would be persons age 65 to 74 and persons under 65. and But remember, all these vaccines are only 16 and up. So anybody under 65 that had a high-risk medical condition or was an essential worker not included in phase 1B. 
However, when we get to Florida, they're not going to follow the federal guidelines. And that, that's how this, this whole thing has worked out is each state gets to do what it wants. So Governor DeSantis pushed back hard on that plan that was that was rolled out by the CDC. And he indicated that the 1B vaccines would only go to the frontline healthcare workers who work directly with infected patients. On December 23rd, Governor DeSantis issued an executive order requiring the vaccines go only to, so additional vaccines go only to Floridians 65 and older, long-term care residents and staff, healthcare personnel with direct patient contact, and hospital patients deemed to be extremely at risk. So missing there were individuals that were in um, long-term care facilities or short-term care facilities. I'm sorry, assisted living facilities. Long-term care was included. Assisted living facilities or short-term care facilities were excluded. But he did include all people over 65 instead of just the 75 and up. Since then, since December 23rd, there have been vaccines going out to people, getting in arms of people in Florida. We've got a couple of million people with, with vaccines in arms. And I think I read today there were um, about 100,000 people who have had two doses already. And it is moving along, but it has been pretty rocky by all news accounts. There, there was a huge news story about people over 65 who don't live in Florida, the snowbirds that they call them that come down to Florida, and others who are just coming down to Florida, getting their vaccines and leaving. At one point, Governor DeSantis issued a statement that he was fine with that. Come on down. I'd, I'd like you to stay a while. But he then reversed course on that and decided that Florida would begin requiring proof of residency. He issued an order, I believe, last week. So now when you sign up for a vaccine, you have to give uh, a proof of, of residency in Florida. On January 26th of this week, Governor DeSantis announced that by the end of this month, by the end of January, a vaccine will have been offered to every single resident and staff member at all of Florida's long-term health care facilities. So that's, that's definitely a positive step in the right direction. However, another issue has been that until literally today, January 29th, there has been no single registry available to those eligible to receive the vaccines. So it's been a little bit difficult and there's been a lot of, of problems, people trying to sign up and get, get appointments. Hopefully the website that just went live today will help with that. It's a, it's a single point of origin. People can go in, sign up. It'll take you to the right county and get you signed up and then they'll, they'll get you appointments. So we're hoping that that'll get things moving a little bit quicker also. It appears the logistics of vaccines are going to continue to be handled on the state level for the foreseeable future. Many states, as you know, are going to accept the uh, FEMA and National Guard assistance. Governor DeSantis has expressed his opposition to that plan. Instead, he has Florida has now entered into a state partnership with a single pharmacy, giving it exclusive contract to distribute COVID vaccines. Um, Governor DeSantis's order actually takes back the ability of county physicians, pharmacies, the pharmacies so far that have been distributing them and hospitals of the ability to receive future vaccine doses in favor of the one single point of our origin um, distributor now. So right now, it looks like, you know, we're definitely moving in the right direction. We're getting some vaccines in arms. We've got that single point of entry system. And hopefully we'll move on once all the end of this month. And that's only a couple of days away. We're going to get long-term facilities. All of those vaccines will be distributed. And hopefully soon we'll be able to move on to the next, next step.
Well, with that background and while those logistics are getting ironed out, let's get into the meat of the discussion. First and foremost, and the burning question top of mind for many employers, can an employer require its employees to be vaccinated? Well, the simple answer to your question is yes. But as I'm sure that you know, and I'm sure that most people listening to this know, when you ask a lawyer a question, you're going to get a lawyer's answer, and it's going to say, it really depends. You know, employers' decisions on that must be informed by logistical issues, by supply, by distribution, by administration of of shots challenges, by the company's own public health policy, by community considerations. So some communities may have wider spread than others, by employee relations and considerations affecting the individualized workplace. If you're preparing food and serving to a lot of customers, if there's a lot of interaction with with others, if you're in a in a warehouse where a lot of employees are on top of each other, all those things are important. Like any mandate by an employer given to its employees, an employer also has to be keenly aware of balancing, on the one hand, the intent to treat all similarly situated employees the same, And then on the other hand, the mandate that the exceptions be allowed in appropriate circumstances. Well, I guess I deserve that it depends answer. But following up on your last comment, the EEOC issued its own guidance on this in December. Can you help our listeners understand how an employer can maintain that apparent dichotomy? Yeah. So as you know, in that EEOC guidance that came out on December 14th, it opined that an employer can mandate a vaccine, like I just mentioned. And it can, consistent with such mandate, request proof of vaccination. Um, In coming to that conclusion, it's important to acknowledge the EEOC's own acknowledgement that a vaccination is not a medical exam. That kind of gets them then to the point that employers can mandate it. The only way, given the EEOC's positions on medical exams generally and how the ADA works, that the mandate could be allowable is if it's not a medical exam. So because of that position, an employer does not have to demonstrate job relatedness or consistency with business necessity to make the decision to mandate. So if an employer wants to, can it just ask an employee about their medical background and discussing thoughts on a vaccine? Well, not exactly. Although a vaccination itself is not a medical exam, there still are prohibitions that the ADA or GINA or HIPAA or in, in other laws that they all affect the way that employers can talk to their employees about medical health information, as you know. So, for example, you know, in a vaccination or pre-vaccination screening questionnaire, there may be questions that implicate or that that may want to be asked that may implicate either the ADA's prohibition on disability-related inquiries or might even ask about genetic information. May say, you know, do you have any other diseases or something, those things would implicate GINA. The EEOC has made clear that pre-vaccination questionnaires are subject to the ADA standards for disability-related inquiries, and that the same questionnaires are likely to elicit information about disabilities. So employers have to, A, keep them separate from other personnel files, just like any other health information, but they do have to demonstrate that the disability-related screening inquiries are job-related and consistent with business necessity. Per the EEOC guidance and case law on the standard, employers can meet this showing only if, based on objective evidence, that the employee is a direct threat of health or safety to themselves or to others. Now, if an employer is is sending out these questionnaires and distributing the vaccine themselves, that's going to be a problem. 
but this requirement is obviated where employers receive their vaccinations and the pre-screening questionnaires from a third party with whom the employer does not have a contract. So if they have if they have their employees go to their own private health care providers or to pharmacies to get the vaccines, that's not going to be as much of an issue. You focused mostly on ADA protections in that response, but you did touch briefly on the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA for short. How is that implicated? So the EEOC's guidance talks about how, about the pre-vaccination questions, really, and how that's going to implicate Title II of GINA. As you know, GINA prohibits employers from soliciting information about employees' genetic information which is defined as information about an individual's genetic tests, genetic tests of family members, family medical history, um, use of genetic services or participation in clinical research trials that include genetic services, or genetic information about a fetus carried by the individual or the family member. If the pre-vaccination questions do not implicate any of the above, then gene is not a concern, but it's likely that questionnaires that may be used may ask about such genetic information. Um, with family medical history, the most likely example. So unlike disability-related inquiries under the ADA, there's no exception to prohibitions against the involuntary solicitation of genetic information. So like I said, with the ADA, there could be you know, direct threat, and that whole analysis applies. Gina does not have that. So similar to the disability-related screening, just to avoid all that, the best move really is to allow employees to, or to ask employees to use either their own private health care physicians to get the vaccines or pharmacies if that's if that's how Florida is still distributing them. Well, does that beg the question then, how do employers confirm an employee has actually vaccinated? Do employers have to take an employee's word for it or can employers require proof of vaccination? Yeah, so if the employee is on site and getting the vaccine, obviously the employer sees them getting the vaccine, right? And they can confirm and, and make a note. And I will note also is um, employers should be, if they, either way, they should be keeping a record of whether or not the employee is vaccinated and, and that they know whether or not. But but just like other vaccines that are mandated by the state, for example, for school attendance for kids, the COVID vaccine records will be maintained by the state of Florida. So the employees, those individuals can get their own records of their official vaccinations and employers can request to see a copy of those or to you know ask the employee to forward a copy of those to them. Um, just again, just just in an abundance of caution, just like any other medical information, this is such a such a little thing, but such a thing you know that employers can can mess up and and get and get in trouble with is just keep medical records separate. So just recapping, employers can require vaccines, can request proof of vaccination, keeping in mind confidentiality protections. What about allowing for exceptions if you have someone who cannot get a vaccine or has a religious objection to them? Yeah, and, and that's really the next logical question, right? And one that we're hearing from a lot of employers asking us, We've all seen on the news the rare allergic reaction to a vaccine. We hear about people who um, have truly held religious beliefs, which would not allow being administered a vaccine. What do we do in those situations? So because of that, the EEOC did note that while mandatory vaccines are permissible, the EEOC has said care must be taken based on excluding an employee from the workplace who indicates that he or she cannot receive a vaccine due to a disability. And that employer must also consider a religious accommodation not to be vaccinated. 
So let's take a minute to discuss what you just mentioned regarding employees with disabilities. Are you saying an employer must undertake the same analysis in determining whether an individual has an impairment that would constitute a disability to be entitled to some sort of waiver of or exemption from a mandatory vaccine policy? Yeah, so if there's a vaccine policy and we're talking about a disability, let's let's take out the religious part. So if we're talking about the disability or medical, any type of medical condition that may prevent the employee from getting the vaccine, yes, they do need to go through it the same way as you would with any other disability and reasonable accommodation request. The employer can and should, when faced with such a scenario, provide ADA paperwork to the employee just like they would with any other disability accommodation request. And then when the paperwork is returned, they review it, they look at what the medical provider indicates as the necessary accommodation. And if it comes back that the medical professional recommends that the employee not be vaccinated for whatever medical reason, the employer should take the word of that medical professional. And if there is no alternate accommodation that can be provided, at that point, the employer has to decide whether the mandate or requirement to be vaccinated is such that without the vaccine, is it safe enough to allow the employee to continue to work there? Well, what alternate accommodation could be made? Well, that takes me back to to the comment that I made earlier about direct threats. The EEOC's guidance suggests that under certain individualized circumstances, allowing unvaccinated employees to be in the workplace could cause a direct threat to the health or safety of others. And if that's the case, the employer then, at that point, should consider whether other accommodations are available. So, for example, in a warehouse where employees are all working next to each other on an assembly line, for example, and, and are in close contact all the time, that could certainly, uh, somebody coming in unvaccinated could pose a direct threat to the health and safety of the other employees there. So how do you, you know, at that point, you've got to figure out, can the employee telecommute? Would that be, you know, can they still perform the essential functions of their job at that point? Can you allow that employee to work in a different area? Can they set up an office that has a different ventilation system while they're still there and still perform the essential functions of their their job? You have to go back to those basics of the ADA and the accommodation process. And if one of those alternate scenarios is unavailable for the employer? And the yeah, in that case, in that case, then yes, um, employers can make the, the tough decision to terminate the employee. If there's nothing that they can do, there's no accommodation available, just like anything else under the ADA, no way to allow that employee to perform the essential functions of his or her job, then they don't have to provide an accommodation. Remember, though, this is only available as an option if we've gone through all those steps. So the employer has the mandatory vaccine policy, first of all. They have determined that in the individualized circumstances of this employment situation, this particular scenario, a direct threat of harm exists if they were to allow this unvaccinated person into the workplace. And then thereafter, there is no other alternate accommodation. For example, the employee can't perform the essential functions of their job by working at home or working in a safe environment. So we set aside the religious or moral objection to talk a little bit about the employees with disabilities. So what about a religious or moral objection? Is that the same analysis? Well, sort of. Again, it's clear that an employer that decides to mandate vaccines must deal with a religious objection to vaccines. The analysis is similar, but slightly different. The direct threat analysis that I just talked about is codified in the ADA. It's not in Title VII, which prohibits 
the uh, discrimination or and prohibits retaliation based on a sincerely held religious belief. However, Title VII does include an analysis of whether a specific accommodation would result in an undue hardship. And if that's the case, the employer does not need to provide that specific accommodation either. So if allowing an unvaccinated individual to work alongside the rest of the workforce would cause a direct threat of harm to that individual or to others, it does follow though that it would also be an undue hardship if the employer were required to allow that direct threat of harm to occur, right? So like I said, the analysis is a little bit different. There's different terminology and it could play out differently in a different scenario. Here, if you've got the direct threat of harm, you really do have the undue hardship too. So they're kind of one and the same. Okay, so it's a direct threat analysis for employees with disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act versus an undue burden, undue hardship analysis under Title VII for the religious or moral objections. Taking everything we've just discussed into consideration, what do we ultimately recommend here? Mandating vaccines? simply encouraging vaccines? Do we have the right to remain silent or forever hold our peace? Yeah. And, and you know, unfortunately, I'm going to go back to my first answer to you again is it really depends. I guess I deserve that a little bit. Huh? <laughs> I, yeah. You, you ask a lawyer a question, that's what you get. So, it, you know, every, every employer is different and it's fair to say that every employer has to make an individualized determination. There are already lawsuits that we've seen filed everywhere in, in other states, but in Florida too, seeking damages for injury, for wrongful death when COVID has been transmitted at the workplace. There's also workers' comp claims that have come about. And Florida has issued a statement from the workers' comp division that facially, if an employer can prove that transmission occurred at the workplace, that that can be a valid workers' comp claim. Now, the proof is a different issue, but it is out there. So, the threat of that liability is pretty high. So I think remaining silent and not even considering a vaccination option is probably not a best idea for liability purposes. The other two options are a little bit closer call in my mind. So, you know, there are several reasons to that that seem like very good reasons to require mandating vaccines, such as protecting the workplace, protecting community health, ensuring that vaccines actually become vaccines. It's Definitely true that people are more likely to comply if they're faced with losing their job if they don't comply. Reducing costs of absences, loss of productivity, long-run medical care. Look at all the productivity that's been lost in 2020. Just, you know, people are getting COVID. There's no question about that. And if, we, if vaccines don't come about, it's going to continue. The ability for the employer to stay open long-term. I mean, the, the less people that are out sick, the sooner that we get rid of COVID in our, in our community, the better, Right and to avoid liability, quite frankly. On the flip side, there's several reasons to just make it optional, reasons to just encourage. There may be problems with employee morale if it's mandated. You're gonna, there, there's definitely, every employer is gonna at least find one person that pushes back a little bit, whether it's because of a health issue, because of a religious issue, or just because of a personal belief. The administrative ease is much easier if, if you just say, please go get it and bring me your paperwork. You don't have to worry about it, right? less liability risk for discrimination claims because you're not mandating it. You're not going to fire anybody because they don't get it. And, you know, there is a potentially a lower need in certain industries. So depending on the industry, obviously, encouraging, making it optional might be a better option than mandating. Well, there certainly is a lot to think about here and a lot left to discuss.
Yep. And there, there are a lot of new conversations and decisions to be made. And as vaccines become more and more readily available, employers are going to have to start confronting those decisions. I know, you know, like you just mentioned, there's a lot of other topics surrounding vaccines that I would like to discuss, including whether employers can offer incentives to employees who vaccinate. You know, that's that's a hot topic right now, how free speech plays into all of this. There's wage and hour considerations, whether unionized workforces matter here, the liability impact on, on a decision to require customers or other visitors to be vaccinated and how to implement those decisions. With that in mind, this conversation is to be continued. We will pick up the discussion about vaccines with a part two, if you will, where we left off today. Remember, if you have questions or suggestions on topics you want to hear covered, please email us at kdowd, which is K-D-O-U-D at littler, L-I-T-T-L-E-R.com, or you can reach Nancy at N-A Johnson at Littler, L-I-T-T-L-E-R.com. As always, we appreciate your time listening. Keep your heads up. We will continue to bring our candid analysis your way to help everyone keep moving forward. Remember, it is a new day in America. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.